And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with the CFA Institute, and our guest today is Asha Mehta, also a CFA. She's Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Global Delta Capital. Welcome, Asha. Good to see you. Hi, Matt. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for including me in your impressive lineup, and I'm happy to be joining you for a New Year's edition of the CFA Sustainability Podcast. Not a problem. Well, we were talking, you know, before we hit record about this is, I think, the 14th or 15th or so podcast we've recorded. And we've, we, we, ESG and sustainability, responsible investment, whatever, whatever people want to call it, is so broad that we're trying to cover the waterfront, if you will, of all the different things going on. And we haven't talked to somebody who's on the quantitative side of things yet. And that's so when we started, when we got the idea for this, this is, you were one of the first people that came into my head because I wanted to talk about the quant side of the ESG and sustainability world. And we'll get into other things as well, but that's that's kind of the, the background you bring uh, to this discussion. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and then we'll get into the, the meat and potatoes of our discussion. Excellent, thank you. And I think no better way to start the new year by than by talking about data, which is such a critical aspect of, of this space, the sustainability space. In terms of my background, I did my undergrad at Stanford. I studied biology and anthropology of all things, somewhat unrelated, but always curious about how do people think? Why do we behave the way we do? How does change occur? There wasn't much actionable from those topics that I could take with me into my career, given that I, I took a career into a, a curve into finance. And what brought that curve was a summer abroad where I was working in public health in India one summer. And I just had a moment where it hit me that the real way to drive change and to affect processes around development is really through, through capital. That I looked around me and saw that what the people around me needed more than anything was access to capital, access to prosperity. And that caused me to, to shift directions. I was on a pre-med track at Stanford. I ended up jumping into a microfinance internship that summer. It was 2000 when I graduated, the middle of the dot-com boom. Most of my friends wanted to stay on the West Coast, but I was, I was really enthralled by the power of capital. I ended up taking a job at Goldman Sachs right out of college, was there for a couple years before I went to Wharton where I got my MBA. And I appreciate your comments about me sort of being one of the early speakers on quantitative investing on the podcast. Uh, what I've covered till now in terms of my background speaks to having a pretty strong fundamental background, more so than quant, actually. I jumped into quant in 2007 when I joined an up-and-coming quant shop at the time, Acadian Asset Management, clearly established today. And I was really excited about how we could take these fundamental concepts, apply proven techniques around data science, 
and and manage money. So I was doing this through the lens of a traditional investor looking to maximize risk-adjusted returns for clients. While I was at Acadian, not only did I run the ESG platform, but I also ran a number of portfolios. I launched the first institutional frontier strategy. I launched the second onshore China A strategy here in the US, a series of global and EM strategies. On the ESG side, I saw this movement coming. We were asked by some of our clients in 2008, 2009 about signing on to the PRI. It was a very niche kind of startup organization at the time and made a recommendation to our leadership that this is an asset class that could grow and perhaps even more importantly, it creates a research avenue for us. So they they ended up um, happily taking the recommendation that made us at the time the first quantitative manager to sign the PRI. I mentioned, you know, sort of the, the willingness of the shop to be a pioneer in this lens of being one of the earliest ESG adopters from a quant perspective. We actually launched the first sustainable emerging markets portfolio, an EM fossil fuel free part portfolio. And, and I saw some amazing opportunities where I could drive the intersection of quantitative finance or data science, emerging markets and sustainability. And a couple, about a year ago, I decided that I really wanted to double down on that intersection. And that, that really helped unlock this new organization that I'm founding, Global Delta Capital, which invests at the junction of systematic investing, emerging markets and sustainability and we use a quant approach, which I'll walk you through, but our vision is, is much broader than that. It's ultimately to redefine how capital is employed and to use the power of financial capital to deliver alpha to investors and also to deliver impact through our investments. So that kind of sets the stage for a number of topics that are on my mind, but data science sits at the heart of all of that. All right. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to talk about. Is there, I ask most of my guests, you know, is there one number or fact that kind of helps frame the conversation of what we're going to talk about? And that's, of course, going to be different depending on what we're talking about. But mm -hmm. is there such a thing uh, in, in what you want to talk about today, one kind of, one kind of piece of data or number that, that helps frame the conversation before we dive into more detail? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, again, we're talking about data science as the focus of our podcast. And so numbers that come to mind speak to the scale of data that exists today. Right. Uh, you know, stats like 90% of all data that exists on planet Earth was created in just the last two years. Wow. That Twitter users send over half a million tweets every minute. And as it relates to ESG, that quite literally in the ESG space today, millions of data points on ESG are created each day. And, and I'm sure we'll, you know, in this podcast, go over the challenges with respect to working through ESG data. Um, but I think that speaking to the scale of data kind of sets the stage for how I think about this, that the challenges are not so much the limitations of data, but more how do we treat the data? How do we work with it in a way that helps us make sense of it? You know, and, and that's kind of the, the number that came to mind or the set of numbers that came to mind when you asked the question. But the theory that underlies that, that I keep coming back to in my work as a quantitative investor is one of the earliest notions that got a lot of traction in this space, or at least, you know, the sustainability at scale space, the academic work that was led by George Seraphim over at HBS on materiality, 
that uh, ultimately we need a parsimonious set of indicators that are predictive of corporate return in order to make sense of the various ESG data sets that are out there and to make them practical for our usage. Well, that, that's a, that's a great scene setting. And that leads us right into the, you know, the next, the next high level discussion I want to have before we get into kind of the, the, the nitty gritty of, uh, of the quantitative aspect of things mm-hmm. of, you know, where have we been, where are we now and where are we going uh, with the data, with quantitative analysis of, analysis of ESG. Uh, and you, and you set this, the stage brilliantly with uh, talking about, uh, you know, the work of George Seraphim and, and, and mm-hmm. those folks at HPS. We just talked to the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative Great. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. I think that Perfect. just dropped actually yesterday. So yeah, just give us a little, a little taste of the history of, of, of how we got here. Uh, and then we'll go into how you guys dive into quantitative analysis. Yeah, terrific. Well, Matt, I, I put you and the group over at the CFA as integral members of, in terms of how we got here. You know, I, I mentioned how I got here specifically, and I came at it through this lens of microfinance right. with very much a return, you know, tr- trending into very much a returns focused approach. Many people put the ESG movement's roots less so in the microfinance space, but more in traditional SRI, which I'm sure your guests are well well aware is more kind of values-based investing and often concessionary in in returns. And then with the formation of the PRI in 2007 and the adoption that first came from abroad and really came to the U.S. in mass just over the last few years, I have observed a sea change in terms of how ESG adoption is perceived and how it's implemented across the industry. Clearly, ESG has gone mainstream today. There is still disagreement, wide disagreement in terms of what does ESG mean and how should it be used. But you know, even across some of the most conservative pockets of investors, I'm seeing very fluid language around ESG. And when I speak to you know, your role and the CFA's role, I think it speaks to the longevity of the sustainability movement, that the questions around, is this a passing fad are gone? You know, clearly the academics have adopted this. Clearly corporate CEOs and boards are well aware and well-versed today. Practitioners have adopted ESG. Regulators, which I'm sure will come to, you know, are, are driving action and disclosures. And then I see your work with the CFA Institute as helping to secure the longevity and that we have a generation of talented young people coming up who are well-versed in sustainability as it relates to investments today. And they're eager to apply their insights and their skills. And so again, I think that just speaks to where we are in terms of the scale of the movement, the longevity of the movement, and the importance of applying some rigor to it, which perhaps moves us into kind of the direction you want to go around how do we apply data science and quantitative techniques. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, I'm glad you kind of mentioned the history. It reminded me that I got my charter in 2003. I'm I'm admitting about how old I am. Maybe I shouldn't do that. But I I got my charter in 2003 and I was doing a lot of corporate governance work at the time. And I remember that distinctly because it was the next year, 2004, or maybe it was 2004, 2005, that governance finally made it into the curriculum. The CFA oh, curriculum is reading. So I was annoyed because I, I knew that very well. And I, I thought I wouldn't have to study that if I had taken it a year later. But nonetheless, governance came in about I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was only a couple of years later that 
ENS readings started making their way into the curriculum. And so, as you said, you've had a generation or more yeah. of folks that just through the CFA curriculum, and it's the same with MBA programs around the world and business schools around the world where ESG is just part of the curriculum. It's part of analysis. It's not really treated as this special thing mm -hmm. uh, so and, much anymore. And, and that sets the baseline. I, I think I was just a year or two after you met. I got my charter, I want to say in 05, maybe even yeah. maybe 06. And I speak to governance as something that's well known. That set the baseline, not something that needs to be defended because it, if it had yeah. been adopted by the CFA Institute, then it is, it is fact, it is truth. And so we have a generation now of individuals who are smart, talented, hungry, eager, capable. We're looking at sustainability notions more broadly as core investment themes. All right. Let's get into what I think a lot of people are listening for uh, when they saw your name and heard you were going to be on the podcast. How do you guys, you know, how do you integrate ESG into a quantitative analysis? You know, what are, uh, without giving away any secrets, how do you, how do, you do that? <laughs> I characterize my strategy as... A, a systematic strategy. Mm -hmm. And I'll walk you through sort of the process behind it. But I think some of that background I shared in terms of coming from a fundamental background and utilizing market insights to identify signals, to build strategies, to tilt portfolios, I really think that's a core attribute that needs to be utilized in the ESG space today. Um, mm -hmm. I'll speak through many applications of technological advances that are material, profound, impactful in terms of parsing through ESG data. But ultimately, I think without that fundamental or market, fundamental perspective or market insight, there's risk for a lot of noise in the system. Right. In terms of how it's implemented, it's fully embedded. So the way the investment process works, it begins with assembling as much data as possible. That includes traditional data like you know, corporate filings, pricing data, liquidity data, as well as you know, alt data, and I put ESG in that category, all the data points we can gather on a company is, is where we start. Second step is taking that data and developing an investment theme. How can we parse this data to predict returns? And it, you know, a pretty simplistic investment theme relates to valuation. If a company is undervalued, then there's upside in the stock price. We apply that type of logic to other types of signals as well. They can be based on financial statements again, or they can be based on sustainability considerations that, you know, if we believe that a company is more properly governed to go to a relatively simple example, then we would expect that companies that have more prudent governance practices will outperform. So as mm -hmm. a quantitative investor, the second important part of the process is to be able to backtest the data and see statistical efficacy to really provide the conviction that these signals are generative of returns. Those signals are then embedded into a broad multi-factor forecast. So in that lens, ESG is fully embedded in the investment process. Every security is evaluated on ESG considerations. And therefore, in portfolio construction, every portfolio would have exposure to ESG considerations because they were built into the forecast. Other aspects of how ESG is embedded within our strategy is through portfolio tilts, where we see thematic trends. Right now, significant trends are out there related to climate and, with, and related to the SDGs. And stewardship as well. Stewardship has really risen as one of the critical ESG actions that an investor can take over the last decade. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a practice that's existed for a couple, 
you know, for, for, for many, for a long, long time, well before I joined the industry. But I think stewardship has really moved from kind of a niche function or, or in some cases a back office function yeah. into a core part of an investment strategy that's authentically integrating ESG. That's great. I think that gives people a, a good under, a better understanding uh, of what you guys are up to. You mentioned data and a little bit about, you know, getting data from company filings, getting data from alternative sources. This is just always a debate you know, in the ESG world is, you know, is there too much data, not enough data. Let me ask you, do we have the data that we need? You get the data that you need. And, you know, what kind of alternative data do you consider? Uh-huh. All of the above. <laughs> so I, I'm sympathetic to the debate and an active member of the debate. I think both are true. And to your points right at the start of our podcast, Matt, that ESG is means different things to different people. The applications vary widely. And so it's hard to give just one concrete answer that, yes, the data is there or no, it's not. It, it really depends on what granular item we're talking about. So, so I can kind of speak to both sides of it, you know, where there are gaps and, and how far we've come. Again, I've been looking at these data sets for a long time. For all of the mainstream data sets, I've literally looked at them multiple times at this point. I've been in the space of tracking ESG data for almost 15 years, and I've watched the data sets evolve over this time. I worked with Professor Seraphim over HBS in the earliest days when he was doing that work on materiality, and I was I remember sitting in his office talking to him about how do you get all this data and how are you able to backtest these themes, get the results you do. And he explained to me that he signed NDAs with the companies to access the data. And I said, well, that's great that you can do that. Um, he was looking at U.S. data sets at the time, but here I was looking at international data sets across the, the entire market cap spectrum with a universe of 40,000 securities. I couldn't possibly sign NDAs with all 40,000 companies. And at that time, you know, being able to replicate that research at scale was, was really a challenge. I think we've come a long way. Again, 15 years have passed. So a lot of the history has advanced. We have 15 years of history now. Considerations around breadth, not enough companies are covered. That has changed. We have tremendous breadth today. Depth, do we have enough data items out there today? You know, it's still, and it, it, again, certain aspects of the ESG space, I'd say the social side is clearly less developed than the governance side. There are areas where there are gaps, whether it's along those lines, breadth, depth, or history. I also see gaps in terms of this notion of double materiality, which is the evolving notion that relates to impact, that not that businesses aren't only impacted by externalities, but businesses can actually drive those externalities. That's an evolving, important space where I think we need a lot of data. But on the flip side, you know, the other side of it is those data points I spoke to at the start of the podcast that, you know, in many ways, the challenge is not the, the lack of data, but so much the proliferation of data, that there are literally millions of data points created each day, and there's limited clarity on how we utilize all the data we truly live in the era of big data, and this is where I see quantitative tools coming in to help us distinguish signal from noise. And this is why I believe there's tremendous alpha in ESG data sets. ESG, in my view, gives us a more holistic view of companies. Before the ESG movement came to light, we were much more limited in how we as quantitative investors could, could evaluate companies. We had pricing data, like I said before, we had liquidity, we had financial statements. 
I had a background as a fundamental investor, and I was familiar with talking to management teams and understanding their challenges and their relationships. The ability to do that at scale historically didn't exist. ESG data sets give us that perspective, that more holistic perspective, but there is an asymmetry in the industry in terms of the ability to unlock those data sets and identify signal. And I, I view that those who have the skill and the resources to evaluate those data sets, seek out those granular inputs that are predictive of returns. They've got an edge in terms of being able to generate that more holistic view of the company and, and therefore generating a better return profile. So yeah, where I net out is all of the above, like I said before. Some data is still lacking, but there's still ample room to generate a robust set of statistics that give, it that, give us that holistic view of companies that's pretty powerful in terms of forecasting returns. Yeah, that, that talk of data leads us to you know, the recent developments and future, probably pretty soon developments that are, that are going on in, in the industry. And we just got uh, done with COP26 about a month ago, month and a, well, maybe about two months ago once this uh, podcast drops. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that came out of that was the creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board uh, this moving forward, that look, looking at, from an accounting point of view, uh, trying to help put a baseline underneath ESG data, data specifically. They're starting with climate data. The European Union has been far ahead on uh, legislation around uh, ESG data. The SEC is likely uh, to come out with uh, their recommendations around ESG and climate data, perhaps before this podcast drops, but right around the beginning of the year is what we're hearing. Mm -hmm. you know, what are your, as a practitioner, how do you see that developing and the pros and cons of what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. I agree. These are w significant changes that are reshaping the space. And but what many of us, I think you and I both included, have been calling for for a long time to have some established standards in place so that we can move away from this area where we you know, broadly don't have alignment in terms of what is ESG and, and how is it applied within the investment industry. I think the opportunity for these standards is largely that, that it gives us more of a common framework, especially as it relates to our objectives. Is our objective SRI, negative exclusions, which is still alive and well, even though that's our roots. When we talk about divestment and many of the sustainable funds I see are truly divestment strategies, either fossil right. fuel divestments, tobacco. So, you know, these frameworks give us a framework to say, hey, this is an exclusions-based strategy and we're not going to judge it. It's just that's how they're doing it. And now we know how to evaluate adherence to those ESG principles. Right. Is it an ESG integration strategy? Is it an impact strategy? Once we can define it as an allocator, you know how to evaluate, you know, ad adherence to the policy. I think that is the significant advantage. Clearly, as a practitioner, it's very challenging in part because you know, some of the documents, some of the categorizations that are in there are unwieldy and quite honestly feel impractical in terms of linking, I'm thinking the EU taxonomy in particular, linking right. some, of their, some of their notions, some of their definitions to actual company practices. I also think that you know, this impact space is growing and as investors are feeling the pressure to integrate ESG in a way that is authentic, there will be continued pressure to do more than integration. 
And so while I think that these standards really advance the conversation in terms of giving us a common standard, I suspect this is not the last step and that there will be you know, more iterations to come, more frameworks to come. This is more in the earliest innings of the process. What I think about in terms of what we should be doing as practitioners to make sense of this and advance the conversation is, is two things. One is really focus on authenticity. So you know, know what your strategy is developed. Uh, delivering in terms of ESG and impact and just being direct about that and understanding different allocators are going to want different things. And separately, Matt, I think of the work that you and I do together over at the High Meadows Institute, supporting them in, in their sustainable capital markets forum, where we work with managers from across various strategies to compare challenges, compare best practices, I do think to the extent there is buy-in across managers on these types of frameworks that will help advance the practice. So, so that's what I see as one of the most important pragmatic kind of next steps for managers and mass to agree to these standards and, and widely adopt them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the uh, We could have this conversation a year from now when there will be a lot of new things on the table that we need to talk about, talk about much less five years from now and so on. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, it's it's a, it's not a, it's it's an interesting time to be to be in the ESG world. Mm. Something you you touched on earlier on earlier, and I wanted to touch on more because we we haven't talked about a lot about that either. Is talking about ESG integration in the emerging market space, and a lot of this also gets uh, intertwined with uh, sustainable development goals, the SDGs. Yeah, uh, you've seen a lot more analysis, uh, integration, and products, frankly linked to the SDGs mm-hmm. uh, and linked to emerging markets in the last couple of years around ESG. And you've done a lot of work in that area. So talk about, if you could, a little bit about how, how we've gotten to where we are and where you things go, where you see things going in the emerging market space and with the SDGs in particular. Mm, thank you. I, as I said before, I see the SDGs as one of those really compelling thematics right now. So from an investment alpha perspective, it's an area that, that I think investors are increasingly paying attention to and, and probably will do so even more so going forward. When I think about how ESG relates to emerging markets, I see profound opportunity, um, both on the alpha side as well as the impact side. So ESG driving returns in the emerging market space as well as ESG creating room for, for impact. And I I'll, I'll speak to both, and I'll try to be brief on these themes, but it's an area of passion for my, for me, so apologies if I get long-winded here. No worries. We got time. No worries. On the return side, you know, again, I've, I've been covering emerging markets for a couple decades in my career, and the last decade, admittedly, has been a poor one for emerging markets with this tilt toward U.S. growth stocks and a handful of emerging market growth stocks. The broad asset class has underperformed. My view is that the asset class is positioned to be one of the strongest performers over the coming decade. And as I said before, sustainability may very well be a driver of that profile. And the reason why is, is multiple things. One, what, one aspect of emerging markets that makes it so compelling is that it's a really exciting space for an active manager. The ability to yeah. Conduct stock picking in emerging markets is rich. There's just it's such a fragmented market. Pricing inefficiencies are vast. Like I said before, ESG gives us a more holistic view of companies. And again, I'm looking at ESG through the lens of the back test. Is ESG predictive of returns? 
Yes, I'm seeing more data on ESG in developed markets. Yes, I'm seeing ESG as predictive of returns in developed markets. I'm seeing that ESG is about twice as predictive of returns in emerging markets than it is DM. Yeah. That emerging markets, you know, these, these themes around sustainability are so much more critical. And that relates not only to companies, but also to countries. So when you think about what are the main risks to investing in emerging markets, Many of them are ESG risk. Many of them relate to sociopolitical risk, geopolitical risk, governance risk, corruption risk. And so with the improved tools and spotlights that investors have, that actually mitigates some of the risk challenges in emerging markets. And then shifting to the SDGs and, and again, staying on this theme for returns for just a moment before I turn to impact. The other kind of broad investment theme that's on my mind today is you know, when we look at it, the macro environment, investors are looking for growth. Interest rates have been at record lows as an investor community. Many of us now are bracing for potentially long-term inflationary effects. Well appreciated today that, you know, those stocks I mentioned previously, that handful of growth stocks in the U.S. and in emerging markets have rallied to the extent that they're widely overvalued today and perhaps too risky today. So where do investors go for growth? I'm seeing emerging markets as not only a high growth asset class, but in fact, the sustainable development goals creating a pathway to further growth. And as trillions of dollars of capital are allocated toward the sustainable development goals, that creates wide opportunity for an investor who's positioned in advance yeah. to those companies that, that benefit from the SDG. So that's just the return side that there's ESG gives us growth opportunities and you know abilities to capture growth in emerging markets and to be better stock pickers. But on the impact side, I think that's part of what compels emerging market investors so much to adopt ESG. In emerging markets, again, there's not only outsized room for alpha, but outsized room for impact that we can use the power of capital, the capital allocation in emerging markets, especially small caps and frontier markets, is much more valuable. These are capital starved markets. These are markets that don't have the same resources or access to liquidity. So being able to infuse capital in those markets to be an active steward has an outsized role. Um, and you know, because we're doing the CFA Society podcast, I'd love to throw in a quote that I saw in one of the recent publications, perhaps it came from you. I think it speaks to one of the most profound and important, you know, opportunities to invest with an ESG lens, that the fundamental purpose of finance is to contribute to society through increases in societal wealth and well-being. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't agree more. You know, when I think about what is the role of capital as an investor, it's to make a return. And as an investee, it's to build infrastructure and to build products that are going to be widely adopted. So I, I see emerging markets as fertile ground to implement this theory and actually kind of pushes us toward these notions of systems change that I know you've been covering in your podcast, you know, that we can link the power of capital in private markets to the power of capital in public markets, drive development, drive prosperity by recognizing how interlinked these capital sources are. Yeah, I, I think it'll be really interesting to watch the, the emerging space and the SDGs is kind of a lens into that. And then, as you say, in the next decade, and I would bet that you'd probably write that those are kind of positioned for good performance because, you know, and, and I come from 
the governance side of things and, and what you're talking about is what I remember mm-hmm. when I first started looking at the governance side of things is the whole argument was markets where, the, you know, the more efficient a market is, the, the, the less this matters. But especially in emerging markets, those companies that were, are well-governed are going to stand out above, above the crowd. You know, the Nova Mercado in Brazil is an example of a whole market section yeah. that was set, set aside because it had higher governance standards. And if you can mitigate that risk for investors and with the data we talked about up front mm-hmm. and, the, and the better access to data and what's going on with the IFRS and the SEC and the European Union, all these are all related. And the more and better information you're going to get around these companies in emerging markets and more people investing around these themes, it's, it's a, a decent tailwind behind, mm-hmm. behind those companies. Mm-hmm. Great. You, you said it more eloquently than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping things up here, we want to talk about kind of where you see, you know, and I think we said a good, we've covered a lot in a 30, 40 minutes so far, but kind of where you see this world going, you know, ESG, sustainable, responsible investing, whatever, you know, as 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 we as we talked and alluded to, there's there's a definitional problem around that. You know, ESG uh-huh. means different things to different people, and that's all right. You know, that's going to happen. But I think part of the solution to that is engagement, and whether it's an investor in a company or a mm-hmm. investor in their broker, that whatever that conversation is, whatever that relationship is, the beginning of that relationship, beginning of that conversation, needs to make sure people are on the same page about what they're talking about and what ESG means to them. It doesn't mean to them. It could be a negative screen. It could, could be fundamental analysis. It, it could be impact. It could be different things. Exactly. But where do you see us going in the next couple of years? And what, what, what concerns do you have and what excites you about the, the ESG sustainable space? Yeah. Um, when I think about what's to come, I, I think about these, these lines around alpha and impact and you know, kind of framed many of my responses there. Again, in the EM, specifically emerging markets, outsized room for alpha and impact. Using that same framework, I see, you know, call it the near to midterm, both opportunities and risks. You know, the the opportunity is we can start to see more investment themes play out. What's lacking, for example, in the ESG data data sets we were here before, it's not just company reported data or data on corporate actions. It's also investors' reactions to that data. Right. So even if we had perfect data on on, you know, climate risk, for example, you can't run a 30 year back test and see that companies that have a lower carbon footprint underperform. It's simply not true. It's true over the last yeah. decade, but not the couple of decades before, because this is a more novel theme. Yeah. So I, I think one thing we're gonna see, which is very hopeful, is that investors are investing on these lenses and we will start to see that in the return profile. We've already seen the flow of capital to ESG funds, and I'll comment on that as a risk, but I think we'll start to see good performance on these material ESG investment themes. The the other piece that excites me, you touched on, Matt, is stewardship. And again, this has been a pretty profound change in the industry, from my view, in terms of its structure, the rise of stewardship and, and the impact of stewardship, especially the collaborative agreements have really brought the public sector and the private sector to the same table. You mentioned COP26 before, and, you know, what I'm reading more and more is that every time a new COP event occurs, you see more private sector participation. And I think that is in part driven by stewardship. Okay, so so that's what's good. Um, We'll see adoption in an authentic sense. Where I see risk is twofold as well. So on the alpha side, as I said, 
this is a little bit of a provocative comment, but I, I am concerned that many of the sustainable funds that are in the market today may be positioned for underperformance in the near term. And that's because many of the funds that exist in the market today have been constrained on third-party ESG mm-hmm. assessments that are not tied to materiality. Yeah. And so if a portfolio is constrained to noise, they'll benefit when the flow of capital comes. But it, if that flow of capital isn't coming and isn't a return driver, then these constrained portfolios are positioned to underperform. They simply have a smaller universe of stocks to pick from. So I'm concerned that we might see some performance risk over the coming years, you know, and, and I'm concerned about what that could do potentially to the movement. You know, if we start seeing this backlash on ESG, to be fair, we've started to see it in 2021 and ESG remains alive and well. The other kind of area of focus that I think is being brought to bear and, and really needs to be is in this lens of impact, especially impact level reporting. Mm. This, again, kind of where I was before the notion of double materiality. It's very unclear today how to report either for a company or for an investor exposures to impact or, or drivers of impact. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, as, as the industry trends from integration toward impact, that will be a growing area of focus. No, I think that that's 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 a gr- that's a great uh, insight, uh, and I think it's a good way good way to end things. Although we're not quite done with our listeners yet. If, <laughs> if they've been listening to any other uh, of these episodes, they know we don't let them off easy. We give them a little homework before they go. Nice. We have all these interesting experts on, so we want to. We're they're our captive uh, for thirty or four minutes or so, but we want to give them more to chew on, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you? jumping into that that you think people might get some further insights out out of? Mm -hmm. I was prepared for this question, Matt, and I didn't want to get too long-winded. So I took some work (laughs) to get it down to two books that I'd love to talk to your listeners about. And I have to say that it was tough to narrow it down to two. In this pandemic world, there is just an incredible volume of publications these days And I'm learning this firsthand because I actually have a book coming out myself. And I understand that the publishers are just inundated with COVID books, people who have kind of taken this pause to to produce novel content. So the two where, where I'm netting out that, again, I'd love to share with the listeners. One is an incredible book. It was referred to me by one of the nonprofits who I sit on the board with, a group called Compass Working Capital, who drives financial literacy in the U.S. The book is called Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. And I rarely hear about it in our circles, Matt. I I hear it's really much more pronounced in the nonprofit space, Mm -hmm. but it is called Lean Impact. And I think of it as truly a lean and an impactful little book. I actually read it earlier this year and I keep it on my shelf as a reference book. And it's just so relevant to the work we do. It's written by Anne Mei Chang, who's a personal hero of mine. She started her career in technology. She was an engineer for Google and worked for many of the large tech shops and then transitioned her career more recently to USAID, where she was the chief investment officer. And the book touches on how to do more with less resources, how to drive change, and the undertones that come out that I think are so relevant to the work we do is recognizing the power of capital and that the power has never been so real. 
so that's a that's kind of a wonky book, but I think I feel like it's lean and impactful, consistent with its name. And the second one is one I haven't read yet, but it's on my list. Just ordered it. I've got young kids at home. I have a ten, an eight, and a three year old. And this book is geared toward my older ones, the fifth and second grader. It's called A Long Walk to Water. And I feel like it's a story my kids need to know, and it's a story that people need to know. It's about two children in Sudan who overcome dangers that risk their lives. And it's about how they improve their lives, how they get out of these stories, and ultimately results in, based on a true story, by the way, one of the individuals going back and bringing water into his community. I, I am so excited about the book in part because I want to expose my children to these themes that I think matter so much. And also because it reminds me of my own family's journey. My father grew up in a refugee camp in India and he tells me about his long walks to water regularly that, yeah. you know, to get water in their home. He, as one of the children was responsible for going to the well and, and fetching it. I think there have been incredible advancements over the last several decades with the rise of sustainability, but there is still so much work to do. Thank you. I always regret asking that question at the end because that always adds more things to my reading list. And so <laughs> now I've got two more books that I'm, I'm always hoping that someone says something and I've already read all that stuff and it's usually not the case. So thanks for your time, Asha. Thanks for that homework for everyone, including myself. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Of course. Thank you, Matt. It's such a pleasure to be here. All right. Take care. You too.